1: I love thinking about when I die because it puts everything in perspective for me. So I'll go, well, when I die, when I die, does it matter that I had, you know, saggy boobs or whatever? I was a size 14 or a size 16 and not a size 10. Like, will it have mattered like when I die? And if the answer is no, then I'm not going to waste a lot of time on it. I'm just not interested. There's other things to do.
2: Hello. Today I'm joined by the writer and performer Tova Lee. I met Tova at the launch of her first book, Fucked at 40, which, as the title suggests, is a rather no-holds-barred look at some of the things Tova had experienced in her then 40 years. I liked how forthright, fun, and funny she was, so I put her on my wish list of guests to come on the podcast, but the pandemic slightly thwarted our efforts to have a chat, and in the end, we recorded this episode over Zoom. In it, Tova explains how she went from studious married woman living in Jerusalem to a divorcee in London before meeting her husband, Mike, and going on to have three children. Does that sound like a neat and rounded-off happy ending, after which our heroine rides off into the sunset? Probably. But Tova, being the boldly honest woman she is, adds a lot of nuance, talking about the mental and physical trauma of having had children, the need to travel away from them sometimes to reconnect with herself, And the desire that, despite loving them, they'd on occasion, in Tova's words, just fuck off. We also talk about enjoying rather than performing sex, how she navigates representing her relationship online, and how Tova has used the very same face cream since she was 20. Here's Tova. Tova, I want to take you right back to young Tova. Where did you grow up? What are your memories? For me, when I
1: think back at my childhood, and actually a lot of uh, periods of my life, it feels like we've lived several lifetimes in one lifetime because it's so remote, you know, from where I am now. So I was born in Israel, in Jerusalem. I've got two siblings, brother and sister. I had a really, I think, happy childhood, <laughs> good memories. I think my background... I didn't realize it at the time, but I think it probably had a big impact on me and how I feel as an adult. So my dad is Israeli, uh, born and raised uh, first generation, actually, in Israel. And my mom, Irish, so born Catholic and converted when she met my dad. So my childhood was very, uh, I suppose, a bit different from my friends. I grew up in Israel and Jerusalem and I had my Israeli family, Jewish family, but we spent our summers in Ireland with my
2: Catholic family. Uh, Such a mix of culture and lifestyle. Yeah,
1: which at the time didn't feel like strange. I thought Mm -hmm. this is normal because that was my normal. And it was only when I sort of grew up a little bit that I realized that it was different. I encountered like questions, you know, from my friends in Israel you know, Oh, what what does this mean? Does this mean you're a Christian or like that type of thing? But then also for my cousins and their friends in Ireland sort of questioning me, what does it mean to be Jewish? Because it was a tiny little village in Ireland. Nobody had ever met a Jewish person, I guess. So looking back, it probably was one of the reasons why I've never really felt like I belong anywhere because I never felt like I belonged. I suppose that's why I don't really feel like I have strong roots either so moving to England was not a big deal for me I moved to England when I was 30 and it felt a bit like coming home because we had always stopped through England on our way to Ireland so for me it felt like home I secretly always wanted to be an actress and I think that inside me there was a a real storyteller that just didn't really get encouraged (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, sorry, mom and dad, but that's the truth. And um, yeah, so I sort of at the age of 30 thought, okay, it's now or never. I got to I gotta try this out. I can't like live the rest of my life thinking, what if, what if? Uh, so I moved to England and I did an MA in performing arts and became an actress. And I did that for a little while. And then I met my husband, Mike and then we had three children in literally the space of 2 years and that was the end of my acting career <laughs> because it's very difficult to be an actress you know when you have such small kids and you you don't get a lot of time to you know oh you come to an audition tomorrow and you just you, you just can't and then i sort of found myself just doing an office job uh worked for for a jewish charity for a while and then i wrote an article on my blog, and I didn't have a blog. So I just basically wrote an article and thought I'm gonna start a blog. And it was called, I love my kids, but sometimes I wish they would just fuck off. And this was when my eldest was four and my twins were two. And that blog post just went viral overnight. And suddenly I found myself, oh, my God, you know, the things I wrote about very much motherhood and my struggles as a mom resonated with a lot of women and mothers around the world. And uh, it kind of started my current career, (laughs) So, yeah. and, And I saw people doing videos basically online and I thought to myself, well, I am an actress. I know how to work a camera and I know how to edit video. I'll give this a go. And video, obviously, is is a really cool format. It goes further than writing. And my page sort of exploded really after that. And the rest was history, as they say.
2: (laughs) That was the most brilliant summary of your life. (laughs) And it was so speedy. And now I have so many questions. Was your family quite conservative or were they more flamboyant?
1: So... I mean, it's such a, I think it's a, it's a bit of a complex uh, uh, answer. So on the one hand, I'd say uh, there was a, more traditional vibe to my home. My grandfather was quite traditional, uh, not very religious, but traditional. So there was a lot of that growing up. And that kind of came from my dad's side, I'd say more than anything. Uh, My mom, looking back now, I realize she, I think she's a real kind of free spirit at heart. But I don't think that side of her really came across (laughs) when I was little. But I guess it was underneath, bubbling, so maybe I could feel it. But my family are very dramatic. You know, my dad is a businessman. But in another lifetime, he would have probably been a really great actor as well. Like, he's got that dramatic flirt. My whole family are like that. So I think there was drama, sometimes probably not in the right places. But there was the
2: the sort of traditional kind of side to it as well was beauty a factor in your young life was your mom someone who had rituals did anything exciting or an aunt or anyone was anyone doing anything beauty wise
1: not at all I mean first of all I think growing up in Jerusalem specifically in the 80s it just really wasn't a thing you know Um, there's a big difference between Jerusalem and other parts of Israel like Tel Aviv was much more into fashion back then and there was more of a secular community, whereas in Jerusalem, a lot of religious people and a lot more traditional. So I remember that when I was in my 20s, early 20s, was the first time that I ventured out of Jerusalem to sort of go to clubs, for example, or bars in Tel Aviv. And I was so shocked by what a big part the exterior and what people were wearing and whether or not they looked cool played in even being able to get into places because that didn't exist in Jerusalem. We just rocked
2: up at a club with whatever we were wearing. It just wasn't like that, you know? What was Jerusalem like in the 80s? I can't imagine. Was there like a high street with shops on it? What was was the vibe? Uh, The
1: way I remember it, it was... Very much like the classic 80s, you know, we'd be out all day on my bicycle. We finished school very early. You'd be home by 1230. I really feel awful
0: for parents. I mean,
1: I would die. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, we'd be home 1230. All the moms in Israel used to nap between two
2: and four. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I love that.
1: Yeah. My mom would go into her bedroom, close the door and we'd have to be so quiet between two and four. And then at four, she'd be like, right at you go. And we would just take our bikes and just, you know, cycle around the neighborhood looking for our friends. And like I said, there was one nightclub in Jerusalem when I was about 17. That was the place everybody went to. Everybody
0: knew everybody's business.
1: But yeah, it was great. It was a great place to grow up and I, I loved growing up in Jerusalem. I and did. And were the
2: cultural icons? Like, were you thinking, oh, I want to be like Debbie Gibson? Or was, <laughs> was it someone from Jerusalem? I think it was definitely, you know,
1: music from abroad and movies from abroad. I had the biggest crush on Matt Dillon, like I watched all his movies. I feel like Israel is also very Americanized. And back then you didn't get a lot of uh, British culture so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, the, uh, although you did get the music, but I don't know. I feel like on television, it was more Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller. But it, it, there was definitely an appeal to, to sort of go abroad and explore the world because Israel is very small. And felt very small. And I think that's one of the reasons, by the way, a lot of Israelis do travel. It's quite a traveling nation.
2: (laughs) You said that you changed jobs and moved at 30 and also you were married before then. So to my mind, you had a sort of starter life. You had a job and a marriage and then you left and everything changed. Um, But 30 is still really young, but it's still an age at which making those changes comes with risk. So what in you compelled you to make that change? How did you do it? Looking back, I think, like I said, we live several
1: lifetimes within our one lifetime, you know, within our life. Like you said, it was another life, uh, another Tova, but like you, I'm sure you've had the same. There's so many, uh, we reinvent ourselves over and over again. So at 30, I was going through a separation from my first husband and, you know, we had, gone together to law school. I met him when I was 22 or 21. And, you know, our lives were so uh, entwined. All our friends were the same friends, all the places we went to were the same places. And I just really felt like I needed to get away from all of that as far as I could, you know? So I think part of it was just almost like escaping. And also... I mean, of course it was a risk, uh, by the way, ending a marriage and ending a relationship is like one of the hardest things ever. I still loved him. And even though I knew it was completely wrong and it was time to go, it was still very difficult. But again, I I think like I was lucky in a sense that I had a place to go that felt familiar Mm -hmm. because I did feel like. London was familiar. I spoke the language and I had that confidence of being able to communicate. And I also said to myself, it's just for one year. I'll come back. The plan was to come back. But then, like I said, I met Mike and and I just, I didn't go back.
2: Tell me about having three children in two years physically. What does that do to your mind and body and, you know, the way you inhabit your body? It, it might sound not nice to say, cause it's like, I'm so grateful for my children. I'm so grateful
1: for having a family. And I know that a lot of people, you know, struggle and they really want it and it doesn't happen. And actually we struggled as well. We had IUI, so it wasn't a pregnancies that came like super easily for us, but Oh my God, it nearly killed me physically and mentally. Physically because I, I didn't have easy pregnancies. And that's something that also needs to be acknowledged because pregnancy is natural, but actually comes with so many risks and so many things that we're just not allowed to complain about because you're a woman and you know you're supposed to be grateful. You've got babies. So, you know, what's your problem? But actually, not everybody is built to carry pregnancies. So some people struggle more than others, and I definitely was one of those people. So first pregnancy, I had uh, gestational diabetes, and that was my easy pregnancy. And then the second pregnancy, I also had gestational diabetes that then developed into preeclampsia. So yeah, so Mm -hmm. I actually spent two months of the pregnancy in hospital being told that I would have to deliver, they'd have to deliver me within the next 24 hours, and the first time they said that was... I think it was 26 weeks. So it was like, it was not a good, good situation. And, you know, the toll that that takes over your body, a having to be in hospital for that long, but also to have to take the medicine and the drugs to sort of, you know, maintain a a, a good uh, blood pressure level, having to be, poked and prodded every day to check your blood pressure, to see how your liver is doing and how your Mm -hmm. kidneys are doing. I mean, all of that uh, had a toll physically. uh, But then obviously the mental part, which you talked about was being away from my daughter. She had just turned two and was used to having a mom full-time at home Mm -hmm. and went from having her mom with her full-time at home to just not having mom around at all, Mm -hmm. missing her and all that. And then on top of all of that was after they finally were delivered at thirty four weeks, thirty five weeks and four days, which is amazing and almost unheard of, even in 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 the condition that I had. I twelve hours later went into eclampsia, which is basically you know when you're when you can die, basically, and that had a massive toll. I came home and I just felt like a truck had run me over and then reversed on me and sort of done that a few times. And that's how I felt physically. And I remember I wrote a text to my my daughter's nursery teacher. (laughs) It's like, it's such a bad place. This poor woman gets this text for me. And it's so raw, like, this is how I feel. And I'm explaining. And she was just the poor woman. I just threw it all on her, but that's how raw I felt, you know? So that's the toll it took on me. It took over two years to recover from that. It really did. And were you talking about that to people? No. So the first two years I wasn't, I mean, you know, Mike knew because he could see it, you know, it wasn't like uh, I could hide it, you know, but I did hide it, I guess, from other people. And I just want to say again that I completely acknowledge the fact that I was so much more privileged and so much more and so much, so much luckier than a lot of other women in the same situation. I did have help for the first few months. And this was, you know, we basically spent all our savings on that help, including selling some items that Mike had been collecting for years (laughs) because that's how bad I was. And I think that blog post I mentioned earlier was probably the first time that I really vocalized Mm -hmm. and still not talking about the physical part, still not talking about the rawness of the birth and all that, not even acknowledging that I was in post-trauma, like real post-trauma. At that point, I still hadn't realized that. I think that blog post opened up the floods of, I just need to get this out. And Mm -hmm. You know, the, the C-section shelf from the two C-sections that I had, I went to see a plastic surgeon uh, to discuss options to see if there was any way to sort of do something about it. And he asked me about the birth. He wanted to know the birth stories, like what had happened. And I just started crying. and And this was two years after it was still so raw and he was the first person to say to me you know what you were went through was was traumatic it was the first person who said that word to me because i didn't even think i had a right to refer to my to their birth as trauma because i got two healthy babies out of it so how can i say that you know that's not okay uh, and that was, I think, when I finally started
2: healing. One of the big problems that we have, that we face, not just women, men too, is the idea of a single narrative. That you can't have layered experiences. Well, we all have layered experiences all the time. We all have things that are great and terrible. And sadly, there's no sort of Richard Curtis ending where everything goes right in life. It's like there's always these layers of good and bad all at the same time. One of the things that you have spoken about, aside from the challenges of having children, but also is the fact that you need time away from them sometimes. And you went traveling with your brother and you said that that was really, really, really fantastic for you. So could you tell that story and what happened?
1: First of all, I wish I could say that I do that often, regularly. I don't, and I should, but I have done it a few times. What was happening at the time was I was 42, and I had a bit of a health scare. I wrote about this a lot in my first book, "Eft uh, at 40." Um, and as a result of that health scare, which, by the way, ended up being okay and everything was fine, but I, it was like a kick up the ass that I needed to sort of go right. I need to now tend to me like what, I, you know, I'm a mom and this is my life and all but where do I kind of fit into this picture? What's left of me? Mm. And there were so many parts of me that I felt like I had just put on hold or on pause. They had just disappeared, like it being adventurous or, you know, being connected to my sexuality or I don't know, uh, enjoying time with my friends, whatever, you know, lots of parts of me that were just neglected. So, Everest Base Camp, the trip to Nepal was really about that kind of, you know, adventure lover. Cause I do, I love adventure. And my brother, uh, who I'm very close to, and he's only two years younger than me, had just come back from Thailand with friends. And he said to me, you know, Tova, it took me a couple of days to just feel like myself again. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly it wasn't me, dad, married, I've got a mortgage. Like it wasn't all of that. It was just who I am, like inside under all those layers. And I just went, let's go to Nepal. Like (laughs) it was
0: literally the most random
1: suggestion. And he went, okay let's do it and when do you ever get to spend that much time with a sibling Mm. as an adult ever and we were back to just being us like we were when we were kids goofing around Mm -hmm. that's something I'm going to take to my grave like Mm. it's one of the best experiences of
2: my life those couple of weeks with him and when you said you're going to go how did Mike take it when you said I want to travel without you (laughs) and I'm leaving you with the children I mean, I think Mike was just
1: relieved that I didn't try to drag him to the farm
0: <laughs> because he would have
1: hated it. It was harder for me, by the way, to leave the kids very hard. And actually a few days before the trip, I was getting real cold feet. And I said to Mike, maybe I shouldn't go, you know, blah, blah, blah.
2: And he was the one that so I said, you're doing it. Like you're going, stop. Like you're doing it. It's going to be great. Returning to your being outspoken, there's a bit in your book where you talk about sex being fun. And I really want to talk about this, because I love your outlook on enjoyment. I think you're a real proponent of enjoying all the elements of life and saying that, you know, people do often represent sex as like, you know, this, like, yeah, like, everyone gets dressed up, and it's all really sexy in a cinematic way. And you're like, but sex should be enjoyable. It's not really about that.
1: I think where it came from was just that kind of I, sp- I suppose going back to childhood and thinking about how sex was explained you know to us as children and and more so even to girls i guess then there was very much the element of warning uh you know like everybody you know the the conversation was around don't get pregnant or you know be careful of diseases it was a lot of lots of warnings mm-hmm. and also i think just sex in general when it's explain to girls or even how it's presented, um, in terms of, you know, if you're looking at difference, I don't know, uh, sort of stereotypes, whatever gender stereotypes, then, you know, sex seems to be a commodity somehow. Mm -hmm. There's so much attached to it. And like, if you give it away too soon, then you're easy. If you hold back, then you're frigid. It's like a lot of, judgment, there was a point where I thought, is that strange that we talk about this so much conversation around sex and girls and sex, but nobody ever mentions the word pleasure. So like all these girls that are getting these sex talks and information about, let's say, and they go into their first sexual, um, you know, experience, the one element they've never heard of is that it's actually supposed to feel good. Yeah. So how are they supposed to know that? So if it hurts, how are they going to know that? No, it shouldn't hurt. Like maybe talk about it. Like there's things you can do, or if it's, they feel uncomfortable or if something's not working, like they, they wouldn't even know because nobody
2: talks about pleasure. You write often about your body and you're very happy to post pictures and videos and things. I want to ask you whether doing that initially was scary and the response you got to it? I think it's been a process. I don't think I was
1: immediately brave to do it. And also I think that my approach and my ideas and opinions about body image have changed throughout the years. So like, I I feel like if I go back now five years ago and I read something that I wrote about body image, I might not agree with that anymore. It's potentially not how I see things anymore. But that's okay, because I think we're all on a journey and it's a process, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I have so been inspired by a lot of other women on social media who are, you know, sharing uh, what is, you know, things and images and ideas that are outside of the you know, the beauty standard norms. Mm -hmm. I think that the more you see that, the more you surround yourself with that on your feed, the more you feel like you can, I, well, she can do it. I can do it. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. I'm not a big fan of like, I don't. I do it, but I don't do it a lot uh, of like just pictures of my body for the sake of now. Let's talk about my body. So the picture I posted a few days ago with the C-section shelf—that's such an old picture. I've posted that picture so many times. Mm-hmm. I just keep posting it with different captions. Um, I'm, I, I, I don't feel the need to constantly kind of post pictures of myself in a in a swimsuit or a knickers. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not something that I'm inspired to do. What I like doing is just if I have a video and I, in that video, I happen to be in a swimming suit because it made sense for the video or whatever. I'm very happy for people to see me prancing around in my swimsuit and take away whatever it is that they take away from that. Yeah. As in, this is what I look like.
2: And I'm just doing a video. This brings me to the second bit though, because you're very much about, this is my body. Meh, this is it. Yeah. There's no good, bad, big feelings attached to it. You're just like, this is a body I live in. And I'm now going to do something in the body I live in. It's not like your big thing. You're not like, let's talk about my body.
1: I do find that conversation to me is starting to be a bit boring. So to sort of constantly talk about our bodies, you know, like I understand why it's needed. Absolutely. But for me, it's starting to feel a little bit boring, which is why I, and I didn't even realize there was a name for it, but I guess the body. Neutrality, yeah. Yeah, neutrality, I guess is what I'm talking about, you know, I, I without putting labels on things, but maybe yeah. that's more in the area of like, someone asked me once, they were like, do you really like your body if you just give it up? And I'm like, it's sort of neither. Like, why are we, I don't really understand why we're still talking about it. And a lot of the times I ask myself, I love thinking about when I die because it puts everything in perspective for me. So I'll go, well, when I die, when I die, does it matter that I had, you know, saggy boobs or whatever? I was a size 14 or a size 16 and not a size 10. Like, will it have mattered like when I die? And if the answer is no, then I'm not going to waste a lot of time on it. Like, I'm just not,
2: I'm just not interested. There's other things to do. Mm -hmm. Let's talk quickly about your podcast. I listened to one of them this morning, the one on divorce, and I just loved hearing both of you be like, What were you being like to Mike? Have you ever thought about divorcing me? He's like, No. <laughs> and, and it was very open and it's brilliant. Do you find that since I want to say embarking on a more public life or having this public sphere to your life, your marriage has changed or that it's evolved? And maybe you've learned things about each other?
1: No. The internet is not real. It's not real life. My relationship with Mike is not what you see online. And not that I mean that what we put online is not real, Mm -hmm. but I share a glimpse. It's not the whole picture. A, because you can't do that. For people to see the whole picture of anybody's life, you'd have to have probably thousands of cameras all around their house playing at the same time, in their car, in their bathroom, in the toilet, like in everywhere, in their brain. You don't, you, you can't do that, you know. Uh, I am always honest about that. You'll be amazed by how many people you know and follow Uh you have no idea what their lives are really like. Like people put out on the internet what they want people to see. I have always been honest about that. There are certain parts of my life that I will never speak about as, and I, I'm one of the honest, open people, but people need to understand that the internet, it's not 100% reality at all. Me and Mike, we have great banter on the podcast and I love doing the podcast with him. There was a point where we were doing it without uh, guests. And uh, we said this, that was the time that we were doing it in the studio. It was like our unofficial date night because we're dreadful at doing date night. Like we always forget. We're like, yeah, let's do date night. Two weeks later, forget all about it. So that was like the one time a week that we went into town. We did the podcast. We went out for a meal. It was so much fun. And then we realized that actually working together and we both work from home, you know, doing podcasts together, we literally ran out of things to say. Mm. So we decided to change the format and start getting guests on because they're far more interesting than us. And it's great. We also tell the truth about, I do all the work, let's face it, <laughs> it shows it just does, you know, does the podcast, but it's fine and I love it. I think it's a fantastic thing. But to say that our work online has brought us closer or has had any impact on our relationship No, absolutely not. No.
2: You said to me before we started recording that you've used the same face moisturizer since you were 20. I would like to know what that is and why you're so loyal to it. I feel like I should get the
1: biggest brand deal from them now, but it's L'Oreal because I'm (laughs) worth it, which is probably like not even a great face cream. But I remember someone told me when I was 20, oh, oh, you're 20. You should start putting facial cream now. Like if you're 20, I'll never forget it. And I thought, oh God, should I really? Okay. So I went and just bought the first thing I saw, which was just a L'Oreal facial cream. Mm-hmm. It's not expensive.
2: Does the job. You can get it anywhere. Is there any beauty product for you that's like your treat thing that you put on your Christmas list, like bath salts or, um, you know, a nice perfume? Is there anything for you that you just love and it's special to you?
1: I'm the, I'm your worst guest. I'm really not into that. I do love a lipstick. I like bright lipsticks. I always think of you as someone who wears eyeliner too. Yeah, I do the yeah. eyeliner and yeah. the under the eye. Is it a or shadow? It's just a powder with a brush, which is MAC. Again, I don't use like a probably great brands at all, but uh and I've had the that shadow and that brush for probably over 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> Little ones, they last forever so good I don't do scrubs or masks mm-hmm. exfoliate I probably
2: should but I don't it's funny how people approach things differently I think that's one <laughs> something I wanted to talk about on the podcast because while I'm like you know quite Marie Antoinette and I'm like spray me with Sir Gluton. love it some people just don't care and it's great I mean that's part of the excitement of life is that we're all different, right? I feel like though, probably I should make more of an effort. I,
1: I don't have a, I, I said to my kids, like Mike always buys me. He's bought me several perfumes throughout the years and I don't like perfume. Like I've started wearing perfume now, actually recently, mm. um, but it's, it's, it's never been my thing. Mm. And I, at some point said to him, why do you keep buying me perfumes? is this a hint I'm supposed to
0: take? <laughs> because why are you buying me perfume?
1: And then I talked to my girls. I, I, I When I put perfume, I said to them, I'm putting perfume on because maybe I don't have a scent. Like, you know, and they were like so gutted. They were like, no, we like your smell. You have a Aww. smell. I know. Aww. And I thought, you see, this is the type of reaction I wanted from my husband. But he, yeah. on the other hand, buys me <laughs> perfume.
2: <laughs> I want to finish by asking you the um, three questions that I ask all my guests. So the first one is what, to your mind, has been your greatest triumph, career or personal? I don't think I've had it yet.
1: <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Totally. Yeah. I mean, and maybe I have, and maybe I'm just being uh, a dick. But, uh, I mean, there's there are a lot of moments. Obviously, writing a book was amazing. And I can't believe I've written two books now, which is, you know, insane. Mm. Obviously, The Birth of My Children, you know. But I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like maybe because i so want to tell in terms of career and i feel like i'm so fortunate to have done everything that i've done so far but my passion my true love always lay was always in fiction telling a story a long story and not a 15 second story that you have to do real quick, you know, cause people's intention span is so short these days yeah. and playing characters that are not me because I'm so fucking bored of myself. That would be amazing. If I get mm. to do that, mm. I'll be so happy and hopefully it'll also have meaning and it'll inspire people or make them feel better or, or do something, you know, yeah. be important. Yeah.
2: Oh, I'd love that. That would be amazing. Yeah what one piece of advice would you give your younger self and what age would you return to?
1: Yeah. I think probably just not to, not to worry so much, you know, just to, to, to sort of not to worry. I, I don't know if you, if you're, I, I don't know what you're like, but I, I used to think myself out of making a decision, you know, and you just like overthink. Yeah. So I'm getting so much better at that now, by the way, well, you so much be- better.
2: You can be so worried about making a mistake Yes. that you yes. don't make a decision. Yes. And, that's, and that's a big mistake.
1: Yeah. And then yeah. sometimes the decision gets made for you yeah.
2: and you feel relieved because you didn't have to make, but sometimes the decision made for you was actually not the right one. So yeah, and not the one you wanted to make. And then it's yeah, like yeah. life just happens to you and you're passive, which is awful. Yeah. 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 Name three people dead or alive who you'd like to have dinner with and
1: why. So I've I've been asked that question many times, and I, I never have a really good answer, and I also think that people will probably change, uh, but I suddenly thought today, do you know what, really, because you said dead or alive, yeah. then I would probably, I would love to have dinner <laughs> with, this is sounding maybe lame, but I would love to have dinner with all my grandparents that have passed away. You know, my, my granddad passed away from Israel when I was really, really young. I'd love to sit down with him. My God. And even my grandparents in Ireland, I was a teenager, but, you know, it's been many years. So yeah, my grandparents who have passed away. And I I think ancestors is just so amazing, even like a generation before my grandfather's mother. You
2: know, oh, God, sit down with her and have a chat. How amazing. It's so weird to think that you're made up of these people and you carry like their genetic traits and all of these things. I never met my mom's dad. In fact, he died when she was very young. But I found a picture of him recently and he looked like a stranger. And I thought, I'm a quarter you like yes it's extraordinary well thank you so much for making time to come on tova i know you're very busy no thank you so much for having me this was so much fun isn't she just great i love the way she sees the wood from the trees and fills life with humor and a question of will it have mattered when i die has really stayed with me there won't be an episode of Beautiful Lives out next week as we're taking a little summer holiday and we'll be back in September. But if you need a fix before that, don't forget that there's quite a back catalogue now and you'll find episodes with guests from loads of different walks of life there.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...